Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is going to be a great episode with Jeff Rowley, professional skateboarder, entrepreneur, professional guide. He's just coming off an incredible sheep hunt uh, with Jason Harrison uh, and his guiding partner, uh, Jake Franklin. Uh, and uh, this is going to be just an incredible episode. I think you'll find a lot of value in it. Uh, guys, I want to thank you for your support of this podcast. Uh, the numbers of downloads just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger um, just month over month, and uh, that's attributed to you guys' uh, loyalty, and I just appreciate that. Uh, if you'd like to send me any kind of email, comments, questions, what have you, uh, send it to my email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can also follow along on my Instagram page, uh, at jscottoutdoors. Send me a direct message. Love hearing from you guys. Love seeing trophy photos and success photos and and such from you from from all your hunts. I also want to thank the sponsors, GoHunt.com, Insider, uh, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, Outdoorsmans.com, and PhoneScope. And you can check the show notes of this podcast to see uh, the different discounts that you can get with each one of these companies and I really appreciate you guys supporting those sponsors, and I hear from the sponsors how you guys uh, come out in droves and support them. Uh, it means a lot to me. So, uh, guys, thanks for everything. Uh, hope you really enjoy this episode. Uh, it was special to me. Uh, I think there's a lot of great little nuggets in this in this uh, podcast. So, take care. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today, I have professional skateboarder. Uh, outfitter and entrepreneur uh, on the line, Jeff Rowley. And uh, Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic today, Jay. Thank you for having me on the show. I, I, I truly appreciate it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. Uh, you, like we were just talking uh, before the intro, uh, you're still on a high from, uh, you know, being with Jason Harrison, being, you know, you and Jake were the outfitters. Uh, guiding Jason on his unbelievable uh, hunt, which which you know resulted in uh, the biggest Nelson I ram ever harvested, not only in the state of California but you know uh, across the whole Western U.S. Uh, it's pretty special to be able to be a part of something like that, uh, and I'm excited to hear uh, you know how you're doing after such a investment of time. Uh, that you guys, you know, the Kika Worldwide team uh, put in on this deal. Um, and I'm excited to talk to you about your background in professional skateboarding uh, and how we have some crossover. Uh, you know, you're an avid hunter, and i just um, interested to kind of get in that brain of yours and, and um, pick away at, at some, some things and questions that I, that I have personally. And, and uh, yeah. lo- really looking forward to this conversation. Likewise, man, I've been following your show for, for many years, and, and uh, you know, you cut straight to it. No bullshit, just straight to the point, and I really appreciate that. Like a really educational resource that is extremely valuable to the hunting space, the hunting industry, the outdoor industry, and our, uh, our, you know, our, our outdoor communities as a whole. And uh, so thank you for that. Um, as far as how I feel after this big hunt, I'm still on a sheep high. You know, every time, like, I help on a sheep hunt, um, you know, we, and the animal's harvested and it goes down, I'm on a high. I'm on a sheep high. I want, I want more of it, and I want more of it right now. Um, but Goliath's a little bit different. 
you know, that was a, that's a little bit different. That's years and years of going after the unhuntable ram that just vanishes during hunting season, right? Like everyone's had that, that issue of, shit, I found a huge animal. How do we freaking kill the animal? How do we put the animal down, you know, if he disappears? So we had, a, we had that kind of year round trying to figure out exactly what he did, where he moved, why he moved there, and how we were going to approach this hunt. You know, so I'm still high. I'm still on that hunt mentally right now. You know, I'm still on. I mean, I just was texting Jason this morning and te- texting Jake this morning and texting him last night and yesterday morning going, I'm still there. Like, I'm still ready to go. Like, um, you know, so a huge accomplishment. I'm really proud of, of Jake Franklin, who, who you know, uh, the outfitting business. He, he owns the outfitting business, runs the outfitting business, and I guide for him. And uh, just really, really proud of, of, of the amount of work that he put in and all, you know, all the bullshit we all have to deal with as an outfitter to rise above that and just be a really good person with a strong sense of integrity and moral structure. Um, that's the goal. That's the, what this hunt means to me. I'm really proud of him and I'm really proud of all of our guides. And I'm really, really stoked and, and happy for Jason that he was able to harvest his Grand Slam in the state of California. And the strange thing is he harvested it with people that had helped him on all of his sheep hunts, unknowing. So we were all sat around camp at the end of the night going, shit, like everyone's here that was working on all your Grand Slam. And that was unintentional. So good yeah. people came around each other unknowingly to harvest the biggest desert sheep that anyone's ever known of, you know, true desert sheep. And so... That's a huge accomplishment. I'm proud for everybody. But as I said, I'm still on a sheep high, so you're going to have to keep working on bringing me down from that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. I know, um, you know, when you you put so much, it's it's a mental state, and when you get in that, you know, I call it attack mode or, or, you know, know, eat, sleep, and kill, where you, you, in essence, that's all you're thinking about is, you know, where is the subject, either ram or buck or bull? Where, what is he yeah. doing right now? You know, where do I need to be in position to see that? Um, you know, yeah. how does he continue to give me the slip so much? Um, and, and you quickly realize, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're a small part of uh, our environment out there and creation out there. And, and um, those animals, while I don't think they have the sense of, uh, you know, thought process like we do, so to speak, with, with as much reasoning and such, um, they mm. do have an amazing ability to, at times, uh, you know, vanish. And uh, I had talked with Jason, uh, and, and it's on a prior podcast. Uh, I actually talked to him yesterday and, and just got his podcast uploaded. And, you know, he I talked that. about a lot. To actually, um, I wasn't able to actually listen to that yet, but I do look forward to listening to it. Yeah, you know, he talked about the journey as well, and, um, you know, uh, a couple years ago, Jake showing him uh, the picture of Goliath, and, um, you know, he talks about how he he just deep down inside, you know, uh, felt like he was going to have a part in, you know, harvesting Goliath, and, you know, he, he truly, in the conversation, talked how he felt at peace that, you know, it was, it was going to happen. And there were a lot of pieces of the puzzle that needed to go into place in order for it to happen. But yeah. he said he, you know, really never had a, a, a calmer sense of, of peace uh, on a hunt. And, you know, I asked him, like, right before the shot and, you know, the, 
Goliath was, you know, laying there with his horn basically in the way of his vitals, and, you know, such a small-bodied animal with such a large set of horns, and, you know, how I would feel like I'd probably Big unravel him. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, and he said he just actually felt the opposite and felt calm, and, and so I think it's pretty cool. Um, how, how did your first encounter uh, with Goliath either in person or um, through photos uh, and such, how, how did it all start with you? Well, Jake and I and one of our other guys, Josh Shulgin, um, all went up, spent overnight in the range. Uh, this was quite a few years ago. And we saw, you know, a group of, a group of ewes and some, some other rams with them at, at last light, uh, a couple of miles away from where we were camped where we were sleeping. So when we woke up first light, you know, first order was have a look at those sheep, right? And so we get those sheep in the scope and we see the ewes and we see a couple of rams, if I remember rightly, it was close to four years ago or something, three and a half, four years ago. Um, and we started kind of hiking down the mountain and glassing some different areas. And we stopped at one viewpoint to look across to where we'd originally saw those sheep. And all three of us at the same time literally just dropped our jaws and went, oh, my goodness, you know, what's that? And uh, that was the first time I, like, I laid eyes on him, uh, or any of us had laid eyes on him. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I guess uh, that, was the, that was the first time. And there was quite a few times, many, many times after that. And like I said, he was a difficult ram to stay on. And he, he, he was a peripheral, I meaning he would be, always a little bit away from the group. So if you found females, you'd really have to scan around, making sure you didn't miss that ram, you know, that was just hanging out somewhere you're not looking. Um, so he was, he was kind of a, just a, a different beast right out of it from day one, you know. And, uh, and so that was the basis for it, Jay. That's kind of where it started. And once you've seen a sheep that big, man, it's, it's, uh, it's something special, isn't it? You know, something special. It, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, you know, you kind of remember the first position that his horns were in when you saw him, at least I know I do, on, on, a, on a couple of, you know, really large rams, it seems like there's images that are burned, you know, almost into your soul where you can, you can almost smell, smell the smells, feel the temperature. You can almost just recreate the scene uh, when those images are playing in your mind. And, you know, it's rams like that. You know, the one thing about Goliath that I think is just so awesome is how open and how deep his curl is, you know, obviously how big his base is, but, you he's know, he carries his mass. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he is everything. absolutely... You know, he comes up, he opens out, yeah. he drops, he's got mass all the way through to the end, he isn't broomed out, he's held it all, he's not young, and so he's a special animal, right? Like, to get to that age and be in that shape and hold all of that all the way through... Um, it's a testament to the species. Yes, me. You know, it's a uh, yeah. They should change it in the dictionary sure. instead of as in desert sheep. It should just say Goliath and just have a picture of Goliath. That's what that's what we need to do. That's <laughs> petition for that. Sums that. it up. <laughs> let's not let's not bring, bring out those those ridiculous ballads that are up in Arizona right now to ban hound hunting. Right? Let's 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 yep. do it the right way. Let's let's petition for it to get Goliath as the. Uh, as the representation of the whole species. Yeah, That's I mean, I don't goal. think you could pe pick a better ram. You know, he's just a, the, just a 
quintessential, you know, I mean, I mean it, it is, it's an unbelievable feat. It's an unbelievable Ram. I love the story. Um, I love the kind of the partnership and, and the camaraderie of, of you and Jake and, and, you know, the whole team there um, and how, you know, other guys had been trying to get the Ram and he always seemed to be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, the reality is he probably – you know, and I said it with the interview with Jason, you know, he's probably just being a sheep and probably had no idea that, you know, there were so many people sure. that, you know, it basically engulfed their lives for, for years on you guys. Um, yeah. And he was just doing his thing, but just a magnificent animal. Jeff, I want to ask you, um, I want to back up just a second here and get a little bit of your background uh, and you are, I believe, from England, and talk a little bit about your background as a kid, um, how you became, uh, began skateboarding, and how that you know, manifested uh, itself into an unbelievable career uh, uh, for, for yourself, uh, and, and kind of how all that shaped um, being from England. Yeah. I'm from Liverpool, England, so the northwest coast, a very industrial kind of like, um, very similar to like Long Beach, California, or San Francisco, California, just from a, from a visual standpoint, the city is right on the coast, it's a huge port, and it was actually a central place uh, during the slave trade, a lot of like the slaves coming from Africa and India would get filtered from there through the UK and into, uh, into the east, eastern border of the United States through Liverpool. Um, I think the Titanic originally set sail from Liverpool, so that gives you a sense of like where I'm from, right? Like a big city on the northwest coast. But if you go 15 minutes west, you're in Wales, right? Wales is a very, very rural area, and mostly farmland. If you head north from, from Liverpool up the coast, you're heading to an area called the Lake District, which is one of the most beautiful places in the UK and, and one of my favorite places in Europe. Phenomenal, beautiful lakes everywhere and uh, abundant wildlife, right? But mostly private. Um, I first started skateboarding when I was 12 years old um, and, and uh, kind of just loved it. And before that, I played a lot of sports and was pretty, pretty good at sports. Like I did pretty good in school at like cross-country running and, and soccer and, you know, all the classic English games like cricket. Like we, we were, we had, you know, I played for, did a lot of sports. And so when I started skateboarding, what I liked about it is that there was no rules, and the, the creative outlet was endless. Uh, um, and uh, I was very much attracted to that, um, being a part of something with other people, but without it being a judged on your way you look, the way you dress, um, your, even your, 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 let's say if you're a heavy set dude. Like when I was growing up, like a fat kid was accepted in skateboarding. When I played soccer, a fat kid wasn't accepted because he couldn't run. Right, like I liked skateboarding mm -hmm. because it was all inclusive, and it was creatively just uh, just an open board of ideas, and uh, so I started to latch onto that and loved it. And when I was about 15 years old, I, I skated with a kid who was about, I think he's about 10 or 12 years older than me, and uh, he was a sponsored skateboarder, but he was also worked for the Forestry Commission in England. Unbeknownst to me, at like you know 14, 15 years old, the guy that I was going skating with in the day. On the weekend, you know, he's going up and he's working for the Forestry Commission in the Lake District. Uh, and uh, he did that actually year-round. And then eventually one day he just asked me what I was doing that evening. And I told him I wasn't doing much that evening. And he said, well, do you want to come out with me and we'll go and try and call in some Red Fox? 
I'm like, well, what the fuck does that, excuse my language, what does that mean, right? Like, <laughs> I was a kid and I wasn't, yeah. like, I, I, I wasn't, um, I didn't grow, I grew up in the city, so I wasn't around that, but I grew up also reading a lot of books and biology books on wild animals. I've always been really interested in the dynamics and logistics of how an animal fits in an ecosystem and it's and how and the relationship it has with all of the stuff around it. And uh, so I was always interested in that stuff. So when I when I was uh, asked to go out and sit on you know try to call in some fox, we did that. We called in some fox. I'm like, wow, that's freaking cool. There's a fox right in front of me right here. And we weren't shooting it because we were we were on an area where you couldn't have firearms. He was just taking me out to show me right. And um, right. and so. I first started going out with him, and then I started going into the high country in, in the Lake District area, and we would stalk, you know, red deer and roe. Uh, and then when we were local, we would sit over badger sets and let all the badgers come out and run all around us. And badgers in the UK and in Europe are a different animal to the badgers that you have in North America here, which are predominantly solitary. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas over there, they live in huge family groups. You know, you can have, you know, 20, 30 badges in one set, which is a huge earth that might be six foot tall in the, in the deepest, thickest area in woodland. And it might, be, it might have been in that same family group for centuries, right? So I was just slowly introduced to kind of some of those practices through my friend. And then uh, when I moved to the United States at 18 years old, um, I left behind what I'd started to pursue in the UK, right? And I didn't know anybody here. I didn't own any firearms. I didn't understand the legalities. I didn't know anything about the, all of the public land that we have or even how it worked. You know, I didn't understand that we, you know, we had our national forests, BLM, and national parks and wilderness areas and what the differences between all those were, along with the legalities of, of, of trying to hunt uh, legally and also owning firearms. So I had to educate myself on all of that as I was pursuing my dream as a professional skateboarder and and I became partner when I was 21 years old in a skateboard business um, and so I had a duty to that business to help make it work right so I didn't have a lot of free time at, when I was in my 20s and going into my 30s I didn't have a lot of free time other than a few weeks a year to pursue what I wanted to pursue in in, in uh, with regards to hunting and also, when I was younger, I was actually a vegetarian when I was younger, and I didn't eat dairy for about seven years for health reasons, um, because I, when I removed meat from my diet, which was for health reasons, I, uh, I filled that in with lots of dairy, and too much dairy wasn't good for me either. And after doing that for six, seven years, I started reintroducing fish and red meat into my diet, and then I never went back. And I never went back from that. But during that period was when I was didn't have a lot of free time. Well, during that period, every year I would go on a couple of hunts, you know, each year. Um, and so I would meet my friend who also guided. His name's Andrew Warrington, and he worked for the Forestry Commission in, in, in the UK. And uh, he also guided for Judd Cooney out in North America. I don't know if you know Judd Cooney, but he's an older Colorado outfitter and a, a wildlife photographer really good one um but judd had hunting camp in uh, he had a white town turkey lease in iowa nebraska in the los hills um he had um i think he had a, a bear camp in i think it was in saskatchewan or alberta one of those two areas but i didn't go up to that i only went to the to the uh, the deer camp and turkey camp so i would meet my friend out there in the last week after he'd taken all the clients i would meet out meet him out there and he would hunt 
uh, for himself, and I would be there with him. Right, so I did that for quite a few years, and while I was doing that, I was also lion hunting every year, uh, which is my biggest passion, is hound hunting. I absolutely freaking love it. And uh, so I lion hunted every, you know, from, I think, 2000, every single year up to right now, bar one or two years where uh, my scheduling wouldn't allow, I couldn't get away, basically. Um, so I've lion hunted every single year. Well, in, in mo- mostly in Colorado and then, you know, quite a few years now in Arizona. And, uh, and that's my passion, like my real, real big passion. But my friend introduced me to that because he was a hunting guide. He's somebody I'd known since I was a kid. And if I had questions, I'm one of those guys, too, that, like, doesn't like to walk into something and, and go straight in and, and just try to go for the gold. I like to go in and check something out. And I like to really learn and really understand what I'm doing and digest it. If I'm going to go out and hunt a mountain lion, I want to know how and why I was able to catch it, where it was at, why it was there, what I learned before I want to put it down. That's just me. So I spent quite a few years lion hunting, and you know, before I actually harvested my first lion, right? And that was just the way that I wanted to do it, right? And so, um, you know, because I find when you trail those big, big predators, you learn a lot about the ungulates. A heck of a lot, because you're going into areas much like sheep hunting. Now, sometimes you don't want to be in that area. You're there because you know you have to be to to up your you know potential for success. You know you're in an area where you know it's an absolute nightmare to climb, and you're pretty much on your hands and knees to get to a ridge, and you don't even know if you're going to see one sheep. Well, when you're lion hunting, you're on the tops of those peaks. You're in areas where you wouldn't ordinarily go for fun because it's your duty to keep up with the dogs and to help the dogs and work with the dogs. And so I I found out, like, you know, I'd be in in these vantage points and in these areas where, you know, the lions were scratching or, you know, and and you'd learn every time you find one, you go, okay, I understand why he's here and what he's doing. And the way that he's moving right now tells me that he's looking for food. He's hunting, right? So, you start to recognize those patterns, and those are what I find really interesting with hunting is the, is the whole process, you know, the whole process of, of it. You know, I'm comfortable shooting and, and killing any animal, um, but for me, I'm not in any rush to just put them down, put them down, put them down, put them down. I want to learn, you know. And so for you, it's, it's, it's every bit as much about the process and, and learning everything you can about a certain animal that you're after rather than having a hunt where you just come out and boom right off the get-go you get one and you kind of didn't really learn anything you in essence would almost rather get knocked around for a few years trying to figure it out and learn as much as you can so that when you do end up harvesting whatever animal you're after you cherish it more is that a good um synopsis what you're saying yeah but i'm also comfortable with going on a hunt and walking up and shooting the animal if that's the right thing to, you know what i'm saying like for like right. a buffalo hunt or something which i've done a couple of buffalo hunts with jake you know and and although yet yeah, there's the element of, of danger and those kinds of things uh, really that's a that's an, a lot easier hunt than harvesting a, a huge bull elk on public land right let's face it so yeah. um I'm comfortable either way, but when when we're talking about like me personally, like the way that I what I enjoy doing when I'm not helping Jake guiding or when I'm just hunting for myself, um, I I, I want to learn, right? Like the more I learn about like the bigger predators, 
the better deer hunter I'll be, right? And so, um, you know, I really enjoy predator hunting first and foremost above every other kind of hunting personally because I find that when you pursue those predators, you find the niche that they play in the ecosystem, right? And you find out areas that maybe will, that at first you looked at and went, now oh, there's not going to be what I think that would be there. And then when you learn a little piece of the puzzle and go, hang on a second, maybe I need to look at that area that everyone's driving past, you know? You learn a lot of that from, you know, if I'm predator hunting, I'm just looking at every track and trail I'm seeing. I'm looking at every brush, twig, seeing what's been rubbed against, bitten, freaking dragged against, you know, everything I can mm-hmm. smell while I'm going in there. And uh, so you, do, you learn a lot. You learn a lot from that. And I, and I find that quite humbling, you know, to, and I feel more connected to the, to the space when I approach it like that than if I just go in and shoot something, which I do. You know, uh, there'll be days I'll go out and I'll, I'll go, predator hunting and, and, you know, an animal will show up in the first 30 seconds instead, right? And that's fine, yeah. right? But I'm not going to then just keep doing that all day long. All day, because what is that? What am I learning from that? I'm learning that I can call an animal and put it down, right? Like I want to yeah. find different ways of putting that animal down. Like I want to walk out a mountain lion, you know, from just on foot, which I've tried yeah. to do before with, with Rimrock and we got very, very close. In fact, if we were... 15 minutes behind the daylight, ahead of the daylight, which disappeared. We'd have bumped it out of the rocks and would have walked the whole thing out the whole day from first light to dark. With, and that would have been with, with, uh, with Randy Epperson. And, like, am I going to get the chance to do that again? Like, it's difficult, right? You have to go, you know what? I'm going to pull the dogs back today and we're going to walk this thing out. And we're going to try and, you know, fill in all those gaps. And, you know, and I did that one day with, with Randy, and, and it was the most fulfilling because what I got to do is I watched every step of where that animal went unknowing that there's a human trailing it, right? A right, whole day. Right. And, uh, and so I learned in that particular little area where it was walking to hunt. So where it was going to look for bedded elk, right, or, or, or mule deer, whatever it was looking for. Um, so that's, I, I learned a lot from that, right? And I can take that into my next hunt and, and, uh, and maybe that, you know, maybe we'll run a line up a tree in 20 minutes. You know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not. Right. You'll take what you can get in essence. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the journey for me that I enjoy, yeah. you know, big time, but I am a, a very, very just year round nonstop. I always want to do is hunt kind of dude where uh, once I get home the second I get back into you know this traffic uh, the first thing I want to do is head right back to the hills and, and like right now all I want to do is go sheep hunt I can't get out of my mind <laughs> all I want to do like as as selfish as it sounds when I've got two beautiful children and a beautiful wife um I want them to be there with me and, and uh, completely but I'm obsessed you know I'm obsessed with that and, uh, do you see a do you see a, 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 a correlation between you know your love for skateboarding and it being I view skateboarding as a real independent sport, meaning um, that as far as on a professional level, like you you are the one that are out there riding and you are the one that has to perform and and you know pushing yourself and. I'm curious if you took the same approach with skateboarding or, you know, are you an aggressive style skater or are you a 
you know, work from, from you know, sun up to sun down type of skater? Are you, are you one of these guys? Uh, I know, obviously, you're extremely talented at skateboarding, but are you, are you one of these guys that's just unbelievably naturally talented, or do you feel like you, you have to physically work on your game, so to speak, or your riding every single day to stay sharp? I mean, I, I'm curious, like, I mean... A little bit, a little bit your, of some of that, I'd say. Um, I don't think I'm the most naturally talented skateboarder, but I do think, um, like, the things that I found that I was picking up quick, I, I was driven enough to, to spend the time on that stuff. I'm not the guy that's, like, training every day trying to win the contest, even though I've won quite a few contests as a younger kid. I wouldn't practice for them. I would just show up and go pretty much just go straight into the contest with no practice or no pre-planned run of the way that I could win the contest, that's the fun of it for me. You know, uh, the actual, um, like, definitely hard, you know, definitely don't like to give up. And that's something that I got from my father's kind of work ethic. You know, he would leave and go to work, you know, an hour and a half before I would go to school in the morning because he, he had to ride a, a scooter to and from work three hours a day to feed his family, right? So when you're looking at your dad through like a, you know, a freaking mailbox through, you know, as he's leaving in the, in the winter and you see him driving off and you're like a little kid, I took that worth ethic into, into an adult. And so um, I have a pretty strong work, work ethic um, that I, I'm thankful for. You know, I'm thankful that my father gave that to me. And, um, and so that has definitely helped uh, you know, kind of get a foothold in skate, the fact that I, I'm constantly driven to, to, to do what it is that I love. I'm thankful for that because that, keeping that motivation and having that reach that pinnacle and stay there is, is something that people really struggle with. I don't struggle with kind of staying there. I struggle with staying healthy because, you know, when, you're, when you do something as intense and as physically demanding and, you know, I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast maybe uh, don't skate or don't skateboard and are probably aware of it now because it's all over the internet and all, all over cable television and, and, it's, and it's the fastest growing sport in North America and it has been for like, as far as I know, the last 15, 20 years, right? And so it's, it's more visible now than, than it ever was. But when I was growing up, we were victimized, we were put into a corner, we weren't treated nicely and we were treated like outcasts and like punks and we actually weren't. You know, we weren't that. We were good people, generally law-abiding, and we had a good sense of camaraderie. And so um, for me as a skater, I, I took that from moving from the, from the UK with a really good scene, um, you know, uh, into moving to the center of the Western world. And I moved to Huntington Beach, uh, California, which is just south of Los Angeles, so the center of the Western world, so to speak. Um, and uh, that was a huge adjustment for me. Um, but I never lost that sense of work ethic or what it was about this thing that I do on a skateboard that I enjoy doing. And I've never had to fight to keep that inside of me. It's always something that's actually part of my DNA and I'm thankful for. Um, probably much the same as, as, as uh, you know, a, a hunting guy that's born and raised, loves it and nothing, no matter how commercialized it can get, he still loves the freaking, he loves the chase, right? He loves the hunt. And he's always going to have that personal hunting to take him away from all the, all the political crap or all the crap of being an outfit and dealing with clients and those kinds of things. Well, in skate, I ran a business in action sports. You know, I was partnered in, in, a, in a big business. And, uh, 
And so I could easily have been burnt out by running the business and then also being one of the athletes. And it was quite the opposite for me. I knew why I got into this, you know, and I always kept that dear and never let anything get, get in the middle of that. And I'm take, I take that same approach to my hunting. I'm like, I'm, I'm, we're gonna, if, we're, if we have a goal that we're set, we're going to hit that goal. And if we don't, we're going to fall down trying. Then that's just it. You know, and uh, like from a physical standpoint, I'm in the best shape of my life. I made a conscious decision about four or five years ago that like during hunting season now from, you know, most of our Western hunting that we have is, you know, September, October, all the way through into January, February. Right? That's the majority of the time, right? So I made a conscious decision from like the end of September all the way through the, the middle of February. Priority, A1 priority is hunting as much as I possibly can and helping Jake on as many sheep hunts and deer hunts and elk hunts as he wants me on. Now, I did that because I always put it on the back burner and life's too short. Life's too short. You know, I'm 41 years old now. I'm still young. I'm still in good shape. I am not going to get to like 60 years old and go, okay, now I want to pursue a lot of the Western big game hunting that I never had the time to just give it everything. You know, because I could book an elk hunt every year and shoot an elk every single year and a deer and shoot a deer every single year and shoot a bear every single year, everything. I want to get down in the nitty-gritty. Nitty I want to I be thrown right in the trenches, and I want to I learn the hard way. And that's how I approach my skateboarding, and it worked for me. And that's how I approach my hunting, you know, is, is that. And um, so I don't know if that – I don't know if that answered your question. Did that even answer the question? Yep. Yeah, for sure. You know, one question I had is when you moved from the UK um, to Huntington Beach, in, in my mind, like Huntington Beach, is, and I think it still is kind of the epicenter of, you know, skateboarding and, and, and surfing and, you know, that, that, you know, Western lifestyle of, you know, action sports like you talk about. I mean, surfing is huge. Skateboarding is huge. Like when yeah. you came... What level were you at as far as, were you already a professional? Were you, you know, at the top of your game? Were you competing? Um, like, what brought you to the U.S.? I mean, did you have aspirations? I mean, you have literally worked with some of the biggest companies and most prestigious companies in the world within, within the skateboarding industry. Like, did you imagine any of that happening, or were you just a kid that wanted to come uh, skate in the United States. I'm, I'm always curious I was how a kid that, that progressed. Come, I was a kid that wanted to come uh, to the United States, and I wanted to I wanted to see what it was that I looked at and was inspired by um, all the way through my youth. I wanted to see that first and foremost. You know, I wanted to see it. I wanted to see what it looked like. And uh, and uh, and uh, I was I was already professional. I, I was already a professional skateboarder, but I. I was young. Uh, the industry was real small at that time. Um, it was in a lull. Um, retail was just non-existent, and, and, and skateboard brands and action sports as a, as a whole uh, was just a really small industry. And when I came in, um, you know, I came in thinking, like, what I would see in the magazines people were doing every day. You know, probably, like, some dudes looking at sheep hunting right now, looking, looking at looking at the game, going, wow, these guys are just getting monstrous animals, but when they go and try and do it themselves, they get a reality check, right? They yeah, get a reality yeah. check of, like, oh, I can't produce that every single day or every single year like these guys can. Um, it takes years and years and years of, of just hard work and experience and, and, and just lots of work to get to that point. You know, even if you are, you know, young or like Jake Franklin, who's a, a still extremely young but extremely experienced at the same time, 
Imagine what's going to be in his head when he's 50 years old, what he's learned, yeah. what he's seen, what he's done. Yeah. It's priceless. It's, super, it's priceless. So I came as like unknown, but I thought the standard was higher than it was because I was used to looking at the magazines going, wow, they must do that every day. You know, my favorite skateboarder, he must be able to do that all day long. And I came to the States to find out, no, it took him a while to get that. And when he got it, like it was pretty groundbreaking. But man, it took him like two years to get that. And I came in going, no, I need to be able to do that today. And then tomorrow I need to be able to do the same thing again. So I had a different kind of different approach that I wasn't aware of. And, uh, and, and, and I just went at it. And I was fortunate enough to get the cover of like the biggest skate mag in the world at that time in, within two weeks after moving here. Which was pretty pretty insane, you know. I was put on. Was the that top because of, of your skills, um, Jeff? Was that because of your like you were doing tricks that nobody else was doing, or your talent level? Like what? So within two weeks, no one like, likes to talk you, about you, themselves like that, right? But no, the, but the, I, I, I went I out and know. shot with a photographer, and he was the editor of the magazine, and I went and did something, and he was like, "Wow, that was that was pretty crazy," and like I said, like I, I didn't recognize that. I didn't recognize that, and it wasn't really, that wasn't really the point, actually, neither. And when he put me on the magazine and cover, I felt really strange. I felt like I didn't earn this. I just went and did it, and he put me on the cover of the biggest magazine. Man, like, people must be looking at this mag right now going, who's this dude? Like, what a waste of space, you know? Um, but that's how I felt. You know, I had lots of insecurities. I was only just turned 18 years old, so I didn't know. I wasn't comfortable in myself as an adult. I was still learning myself. You know, and I was thankful for the opportunities, but when I was given those opportunities, I took them. You know, I took them and I, and I stayed loyal to you know, everybody I've worked with, and that's something I'm very proud of, is that I haven't burnt any bridges. I have no bad blood. I have no, um, you know, no, no ill feelings for the companies I've worked with that maybe I don't still work with or likewise. And, uh, you know, and, and that's, I'm thankful for that. You know, I'm thankful for that. But a lot of hard work. You know, really, like I love skateboarding. I'll give it everything, um, much like hunting. I'll give it absolutely everything, um, and I think that's probably a big part of of my success in that space. You know, along with obviously, you need to have the ability to pull that off, right? And uh, and uh, and, it, and if you're a flash in the pan, you're going to be just that. You know, if you if you you know if you if you don't continue to produce, you're only as good as, you know, the, the work that you're putting out at that time. And action sports is a very young industry, and they will swallow, it will swallow you up. It will swallow you up. But I always stayed very clear on what my goals were. My goals were to progress my skateboarding and do it for the right reasons and be thankful that I get to make a living out of it. First and foremost, nothing can touch that. And I'm thankful for that, that I've made a career from that. And I've had success with that. And now I can really enjoy it. Like, I'm not slowing down as a skateboarder right now, Jay. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not quitting a professional skateboarder and trying to pursue a complete career in the outdoor space. I'm enjoying my skateboard. The content I'm putting out and the amount of content I'm putting out is more than I've ever put out. More big video projects, more everything. I'm in my 40s, you know, and I have, the, I have a bigger and better lung capacity than I had when I was in my 20s because of all my desert and mountain hunting that I do. <laughs> so I, you know, me yeah. going and skateboarding in the skate park, run, skating around in circles for three hours is like actually a joke, you know, really now. And, uh, and so I'm benefiting from all of my outdoor pursuits, but there is no real, there is a similarity to trying to find the biggest animal or trying to break down and figure something out. It's very similar. 
um, where I, I try to find like architecture and things that people aren't looking at and think, shit, I could skate that. Like there's a roof cap there. Like if I fell, I'd die. No one's ever done that before. Let's do that. Like I look at hunting <laughs> like that. Like let's look in an area where maybe nobody's looking, but it has what we know that animal needs, even though nine times out of 10, that animal might not be there, right? Try different things. Don't get stuck in, in ruts. Don't be afraid to go out of your comfort zone. Don't be afraid to tell people your boundaries, you know, and what you're capable of doing. And I think, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that really ties into kind of like the hunt that we just did with Jason where like it took everybody. It took every little bits and nuances of people's different skill sets to harvest this animal. So when it went down, that's why it was so much, so much more meaningful and so much more just incredible for everybody involved, including conservation in the state of California. I mean, that's a freaking huge deal. And, um, and so there is a similarity like that, like the seek and destroy kind of thing, <laughs> which, yeah. is, which I think everyone that hunts can relate to the like shit, you know, I, it's like that in skateboarding. Like you're in the city center and you're trying to skate a big stir set, but you know that you kind of shouldn't be there doing that because it's private property. But you know that, like, if you want to do that trick that you can only do right there because there's no architecture like that in, in any kind of uh, skate park, right? If you want to creatively, you know, knock down those doors, you, you have to figure out how to get that done. You might have to time the amount of time it takes a security guard to walk around the building. If that's six, seven minutes, then you have six, seven minutes to get your trick. But if you get caught, you go to jail, right? <laughs> so with hunting, you have that. You have somewhat have that. You're like, here's my window opportunity. If I miss it, like, ah, damn, back to square one, you know? And um, without breaking the law, obviously, right? And, yeah. uh, how how so, important yeah. do you think it is to have two passions like you do? Um, you have more passions than two, but to have hunting and have skateboarding, um, do you seek refuge in either one of them, getting a break from either one of them by pursuing the other one? I know I like to hunt, I like to fish, and one of the things that I think I said, we're going to get tired of it, well, one of the things I like about hunting so much is that there's all these different seasons and there's different animals to pursue, and just about the time you go through, you know, 30, 40 days of chasing elk, that season goes over and it jumps into deer, or it jumps into sheep season, or you know, in the spring, then it's turkey season, and then, you, you know, you've got to break off in, in the summer, and I do a lot of fishing, and so I feel like I'm wondering if there's a, a correlation between, you know, all the business stuff that you do within skateboarding and then all of the actual, you know, everyday riding stuff that you do within skateboarding, and then you get to do all these different hunts, so you almost break up mentally where your chase, your pursuit is, you know, you're kind of... Um, you know, stimulating your senses and your brain in this aspect, and then you switch gears, and now you're off, you know, hiking up the mountain, going and looking for sheep. How important do you think that is? I need to have a camera over my shoulder 24-7. That, that's pretty much like it, it would be such a contrast for people to see, um, you know, how frequently I wake up at 2.45 a.m. or 3.15 a.m. and head out to the desert and I drive, you know, two, three hours before I'm even pulling up to a trailhead and starting to go where I'm at. I do that year-round, you know, year-round uh, in, in our deserts and our mountains. And so um, when I come back and, and, and skate, like for, for years I put all the outdoor pursuits not, not, I didn't not do them by any means. I put them on a back burner because I had a career, right? A career in 
action sports and skate and I was a business owner in that space so I only had so much free time I could only really pull out three four weeks of a year right like and that's max like in one block because of all the events all the places I was obligated to be all of the retail events all of the trade shows all those kinds of things if you own a business in that space much like if you're at the sheep show or if you're at the shot show or wherever you're at you need to be there if you're not there then you get forgotten right and especially in a young industry that's all about face value you know um and so what I do now is like I'm so, for so many years, like I've built all those relationships, you know, with all the retailers, distributors, wholesalers, um, partners, sponsors, whoever it is. I just cherry pick what's really important in skate and action sports for me to be at. I, I don't waste my time in that space. And in turn, I utilize that time that's freed up to go to, to be either on a hunt or to be at a hunting event or a trade show, like, you know, a lot of your kind of Western stuff is, you know, January and February, right, it's earlier in the year, right? Now, I don't have a lot of skate events in January and February, but I have a lot between, like, April, May, all the way up to August, because that's all the summer months and good weather across the whole world, mostly. So I have to make sure that during that period I, I, I cover all of that stuff, and then that allows me the flexibility from, like, September all the way through to January and February to fit in all the hunts that are important to me, and then I fit in as much of the other stuff as I can around that. Um, you, you know I have a house in Arizona, right? And I've had a house in Arizona for now, man, 13, 14 years. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a place um, not too far from Williams. And uh, okay. on one, I had, I had an injury about 2005, two back-to-back -back injuries. I had a really badly broken ankle in surgery, and then I went straight in. Right when I covered from that, I bust my knee up and had surgery on the knee on the same same leg. So I bought a place in Arizona thinking I'm just going to like basically move here. I'll be able to skate a bunch in Phoenix and I'll be able to really pursue all the outdoor stuff I've really put on the back burner. That was in like 2004 or five or something like that. And, um, and, and I recovered well, like to where I was totally fine. But I spent, you know, the whole of that year, nine months straight living at, at my house there and, uh, you know, and then a couple of years after that, I, uh, I met my wife and we had two kids, so I don't get out there as much, right? But I lived there for close to a year, and it's really true to my heart. I love Arizona. If I could move and live in Arizona right now, I would be there tomorrow. I'd be there yesterday. I'll be there all next week for Thanksgiving, and I get there as much as I can um, because I love the state and I love the public land opportunities, you know, and I love the, just the topography and the, the animals that you have access to. And we have that in California. We just have a lot of more red tape, you know. We have a lot more red tape that takes the fun out of it, you know. Like having to drive for three hours before I get to a trailhead, you know what I mean? Like I know we, you do that in Arizona just the same, right, when you have to. But you're out of the city within 15, 20 minutes. I'm out of the city in two hours, you know. Right, so right. It's, um, it, it's a lifestyle that, like, I live in the city, and I, I, and I, I love living where I live for the skate stuff. Cause it's how it, but I get inspired when I go out into you know the mountains and deserts. I get inspired to do that skate stuff. So it does, it does help big time. And it, there is a huge contrast to it, but it does help me mentally. Meaning, I've worked on you know product uh, in the action sports, you know footwear, clothing, apparel, hard goods, soft goods, every every piece of apparel that your brain could conjure up, um, metals, urethanes, woods glues, paints, freaking every kind of like medium and printing technique on every kind of material, you know. Um, I worked on a lot of that stuff. So 
um, very much involved with product. And so the more I pursue the stuff, I mean, I own a knife, I own a knife company called Civilware, right? And it's, um, we manufacture stuff ourselves locally in kind of Long Beach, Signal Hill, and in and the Apple Valley, which is the high desert in California. Wherever we work in, in, in that capacity, and we make our domestic products in those two places. Uh, and I have an engineer that's one of, the, in my humble opinion, one of the best handmade knife makers alive today. His name is David Sharp. He's phenomenal, incredible knife designer, engineer, and handmade knife maker. Well, he runs, he runs kind of our domestic production and helps me with engineering on our knives. And so it's really refreshing when I'm on a skate tour for two weeks. Like I did this summer, I did a tour from um, Texas all the way through to Chicago in the middle of summer and the hottest time of the year. And then I come straight back off that, and I'm going straight into, you know, 115-degree weather in the desert, and I'm hiking freaking past my comfort zone to just look for sheep, and it's completely silent, and there's very limited access, no war, and just no people, right? And then to go straight back into a big, busy, bustling event where there's 2,000 people, it's actually kind of humbling. I get there, and I go... I look at it and go, okay, I see this now. I see, I see clearer where I'm at right now. I know what I just did, why I did it, and the value I get from that is priceless. But I bring that into product. I bring it into the creative process, and it makes it easier for me. It makes it more natural. It, it cleans out the, the stuff that a lot of times when you're designing stuff, you overdevelop, you overthink. Everyone's, everyone does that. And if they say they don't, they're lying. Every freaking one over-evaluates what they're looking at. You're supposed to with product. It's, a lot of times it's the experience that the person has with the product that dictates whether they like it or not. So it's got to feel good. It's got to, be, it's got to feel nice in the hand. It's got to sit well in their pockets. It's got to be a step above what they're used to handling, right? And so what that helps me, you know, with skating and the hunting is just that. I can juxtapose them against each other. If I go on a skate trip and I come back, the first thing I want to do is get the heck out of, of other than, you know, give my children a big loving hug and, and spend some time with my wife. And that obviously is number one priority. But the first thing personally my head wants to do is to get out to the desert because I know that I can really process what I just did. I was on a U.S. tour right the way across the country. I can process that if I'm out in, the, in a quiet area with no sound pollution. And, um, and, and I'm I know what I'm focused on when I'm going there. I'm not think sitting there thinking about new product designs or, or new knife designs or new ways to, new locking mechanisms or new ways to do things better. Yeah, I am thinking about that, but I'm not overanalyzing it. It's, not, it's naturally coming into my head because my head's not cluttered from from everything, and, and, and I think a lot of kids now and a lot of the world that we live in, it's, it's just too much information for everybody to process. It's not healthy, and so that become, that makes hunting and the outdoor pursuits that much more important that, you know, uh, especially, you know, uh, the role that I play or the, the fact that I have, a, you know, a following in action sports from, from my skateboarding, and I can, you know, if I say something on my social media, uh, at least a certain amount of people are going to look at it and read it, that gives me a, a unique opportunity to to just educate or just to be a, a just a healthier, younger voice in our space, without me going above and beyond my experience in that space or skill set. Opening up doors, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of kids, uh, you don't have a lot of uh, pro skateboarders that hunt. You know, I know freaking all of them. 
right? I know the majority of the, the kids that are out there and the, and the you know, the, the older pro skaters and the younger ones that are there because I'm at all those events. And uh, I'm interested in it. So I know the kids that are, you know, ripping and, and, and the kids to look at. And, and they're not, you know, the kids aren't coming up that hunt. Uh, there's a lot more kid people in the, in surfing. You know, a lot of, you see a lot of surfers that are boat hunters or, or, or hunt. But there's a lot more correlation between going to the surf and then go, you get to natural thing, right? You're out in the ocean and the water, whereas in, in skateboarding, you're in the streets in concrete. It's man-made. Um, you know, a, a guy that's surfing, it makes perfect sense that that guy might fish. And then that guy might also like to kill pigs with his bow. And, and that's what help comes in tune with that, like, uh, you know, hand-to-mouth kind of deal where you, know, you harvest your own meat and, and it's healthy. And that goes in along with the surf culture, which is a little bit of an older culture to our action sports. And, and it appeals to a, a larger demographic, like a 50, 60-year-old dude still thinks it, you know, when he's on vacation that it's it's nice to wear a pair of surf shorts and put his, you know, little flip-flops on. He's not putting skate shoes on and he's not putting the pair of freaking, you know, skate pants on, is he, when he's doing that? He's past that kind of thing. And so um, I do want to make sure that, like, because it's, it's, it's our kids, it's the youth, right? And, and they're very much affected by, you know, people are inspired by and they do listen to that. And so... You know, I hope that I can just be a positive voice, especially with me coming full circle and, and kind of living in the city, um, you know, guiding sheep hunts and hunting personally and my personal pursuits of predator hunting, which I live in California, so you can imagine how accepted that is. And, you know, if I'm in, if I'm in, a, if I'm in a restaurant in Southern California, I'm sitting there and somebody overhears me going, yeah, I was just on a big lion hunt last week. I shot four fox yesterday and missed one bobcat. But, you know, their their first response is they just look at you and go, mm. they, they, they don't, they don't, there's no, they don't get it. It's not, it's not an interest to them. So I, I, what I hope I can do is just raise a little bit more awareness to how the benefits of it, you know, and the, the large, the biggest benefit, you know, that, that I see is that just as a wildlife management tool, it's A1. It's A1. It's irreplaceable, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I did want to. I did want to talk to you about this. There's a ballot that's up in Arizona right now. You know, the the to ban hound hunt. I don't know if that's something that you, you know, want to talk about. Talk about. Uh, I'm Absolutely. interested to hear, you know, your viewpoint on it. But from from an outsider that you know loves the state, and is very much interested in sheep and sheep hunting and and big predators. Um, I know that the state is spending a lot of money to reintroduce sheep into. Into the uh, in, into the into the, the Catalina's just north of Tucson, right? Just on the backside of Mount yeah. Lemon. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just from what I remember on it, and and I think that they're spending, you know, close to two hundred thousand dollars, right, on sheep reintroduction this year in that in that area. Does yeah. that sound about right? Yeah. How much mm-hmm. do you know? How much that the state spends on on uh, sheep conservation in Arizona? I, I, I don't, from a standpoint of, you know, putting sheep back on the mountain, guzzlers, uh, I know that one of their biz, biz, uh, biggest expenses is helicopter surveying. So in yeah. order to manage the herds and what have you, you know, they have a lot of helicopter time, which costs a lot of money. Um, hmm. But they do spend lots of money year in and year out on, uh, you know, trying to, manage the sheep and the one thing that that alarms me the most about the initiative is the fact that i feel like when you take management of wildlife you know whether it be deer elk you know sheep mountain lions bobcat whatever it may be when you try and take that out of the hands of the wildlife managers 
you know, the professionals, the people that have been trained to manage our wildlife uh, and do something like the state of California where, you know, a complete ban on mountain lion, you know, sport hunting, uh, mm. you know, with, 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 with hounds um, or, or of, of any kind, uh, you are going to have an overpopulation uh, of predators. And, well, you're removing um, the, the, the ability to manage them, right? First and foremost, you're right. removing the one tool that allows you to manage your resource. And it's the yin to the yang, right? Without the managing the predators, how can you expect to manage the, the, the prey, right? Like without the ability to, to be adaptable like that as a, as a wildlife manager, you know, uh, or somebody that might allocate where those funds go and how those funds are spent. Removing that tool seems so counterproductive to spend in hundreds of thousands of dollars to reintroduce an animal that isn't threatening to the general public, which is sheep. You know, but it's also not that exciting to the general public, like a you know, like a grizzly bear would be, or or, or a black bear, or, or your giant panda, right? Which, um, so that's the, that's what I struggle with is is um, is just that balance of you're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to reintroduce, reintroduce an animal, and at the same time you're going to put the potential of losing the biggest wildlife management tool for that reintroduction, which is being able to manage predators. Um, and, and, and it's not the general public that should be dictating how to manage our wild animals. It's our professionals and people with the real experience and on the ground and people out there every day. Because as you know, Jay, like one mountain range one year can be full of elk. Next year you go there and there's no elk there, right? Because it, it changes. Like the, you know, the food source changes. The, the moisture changes. Just, the, just, just the, the, the economics and the logistics of those ranges constantly changes. So if you don't have the ability to, to manage half of the wild game in that area, the most important ones, the ones that, if they're left unchecked, um, can cause serious damage. And you have, you know, wolves squeezing into Arizona, you have wolves squeezing into California, and that is an animal that gets a lot of empathy and gets, wrongfully so, gets way, 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 way more support than it should. But it's also one of the most misunderstood uh, of those animals that gets way more media attention than it should because from my understanding, every study that's ever been done on wolves in North America has pretty much proven to them to be indiscriminate killers, right? And um, and I'd love like people to respond to that and tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong, but from my experience with that, if that's the case, right, and we're going to allow that animal to go unchecked, and we've already allowed it to go unchecked in a lot of the Western states. And look at the wasted money and the wasted time and the wasted battles between pro and anti-hunting on that animal. So much wasted time, money, resources. Um, I'd hate to see that kind of start happening in, in uh, you know, in, in Arizona because it's um, Arizona does have a very special just selection of animals, you know, and and terrain. And uh, and it's mostly public land. It's like seven. Is it seventy percent public land in Arizona? It's, it's freaking it's huge. Eighty-three percent, seventeen percent private, eighty-three percent public. From the best that I can recollect, and and what tons a beautiful of public thing. land. Yeah, and it's incredible. And you know, one thing that I, I I'd like to point out is, you know, I think it's it's a shame that houndsmen get labeled as these guys that are, you know, bloodthirsty killers that want to see all lions, you know, um, yeah. you know, wiped off the face of the, 
of the landscape off the face of the earth and you know it, it can't be any further from the truth and it's always something that you know i hear and it just makes me kind of cringe because you know most houndsmen that i know i mean uh, i'm here uh, managing a ranch in colorado uh during the fall and hunter meekum he comes from a long line of mountain lion uh history family in utah and um you, you know I've, I've gotten to spend a ton of time with them and you know uh floyd green and andy knowlton and you know there's so many people in arizona that i know and they they absolutely love lions they don't want to see lions you know over harvested you know they, they know their role in you know they know the lion's role within the ecosystem and they're not bloodthirsty killers and i it's so crazy to me how the media portrays the the, the guys that really love to pursue to like easy yourself. target love yeah you know? the easy target but they really dog. don't know these guys, um, and you know I, I think it's 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 an alarming uh, you know initiative that you know they're trying to get I believe 150,000 uh, signatures. Uh, if they do, it will go on the ballot, um, and I think it's important that and that goes know, up in November, right? Are they trying to get 150,000? When does it when does it all go up? Do you know? You know I, I, I want to say it's it's. I should know this, but I want to say it's not till after the first of the year. Um, yeah. But, you know, the reality is uh, we need to let man wildlife managers who are the professionals stay in control of managing the wildlife. Everything yeah. from, you know, deer, elk, sheep, uh, birds, fish, you know, you name it. They are the professionals. Now, there yeah. are wildlife groups that are, uh, have input with those wildlife managers who can, you know, I'm not going to say that we should always agree with the wildlife managers and the biologists because I think it's a situation where some of these groups, Desert Bighorn Sheep Society, you know, Mule Deer Association, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Arizona Elk Society, you know, all those types of groups can also petition and have their say in trying to help manage the wildlife as best as we can um mm. but you know something like this we need to educate people that are non-hunters uh because i think that's the population that you know is in the middle there's there's a bunch of non-hunters that they they're not either way they're not one side or the other but they are going to have an opportunity to sway you know the vote so to speak and they might not well, that even comes know back what they're to, voting for. That comes comes back to, to allowing the general public the power to be able to dictate how our wild animals are, are managed, and that comes down to, to supporting and getting behind our professionals because what's the point in somebody spending their whole life trying to learn about one particular species and giving up their whole life to be a biologist for that species only to not even be allowed to do their job, right? Like So yeah. that's, that's, that's sad, and that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, hound hunting is it's an easy target it's misunderstood it's not something I think even a lot I've seen a lot of hunters go out ah, no I'm not I wouldn't do that I'm like you wouldn't do that why wouldn't you do that why not like tell me why it's not a good enough valid opinion come out let's go and try this right but from you know I, like I've read almost every university paper written on lions and i think morris hornocker was the first who wrote one in like 1972 i think it was and, that, and prior to that we didn't even know how many offspring they had we didn't know their gestation period right we didn't know how they 
how frequently they bred, and in what terms and, and why. And we didn't understand any of the way that they marked their territory. We didn't really know how many offspring they had on average, really, until those studies started happening. Well, how did those studies, how did they catch those cats? They caught them with dogs, right, and with hound hunting. They used the skill set of, like, well-trained hounds that uh, may have been through generations of families and, and traded off in most of the Western U.S. between the people that were really invested in, in breeding those dogs that were impeccable or had the right trailing capabilities, right? Um, and uh, they were using that tool, right? And we've used it in every one of those university studies to learn about this big predator, right? So what are we doing to find out things that we don't know about these animals? We're using skilled personnel, hound hunters, right? And so the hound hunter that spends all day, some of them spend all year round trailing animals, trailing lions, trying to catch them, trying to find where they're at. And some of them let them go regularly. Some of them don't. Some of them shoot every lion that they see. Now, the persona attached to, to hound hunting is, like I said, an easy target. So when you have somebody that's maybe not acting the way that they should when they're in that position and, and and upholding that negative persona, that just adds more. It's just, it makes it an even easier target. So, you know, from, from a hound hunting standpoint, um, we really just need to put it down to what it is. It's an incredible tool, and, and, it's, and it's priceless, and it's irreplaceable. And if we remove that, the, the general public's ability to pursue that kind of hunting, we're removing that skill set that allows us to learn things about these big predators that we wouldn't otherwise knowingly have access to or have the ability to learn. And, uh, like, I'm not going to take that lightly. Like, what that bill that's up there, like, that to me is just really just a, a figurehead of just poor, a poor subject to go out at the wrong time. It's totally, totally backwards way of thinking. And, and we know where it comes from. It comes from, you know, the humane society and their, and their willingness to lie to the general public to get the votes, to get the agenda that they want. I mean, if you look at their website, right, and I'm opening it up right now. I'm going to open it up right now. If you look at it, what it says, right, why aren't they being held accountable for these things? You know, why aren't they being held accountable? At the top of their page, let's see. Uh, Arizona's, Arizonans for Wildlife. Top of the page, Arizonans for Wildlife is working to protect our state's wild cats from extreme cruelty by prohibiting the trophy hunting and trapping of mountain lions, which is already illegal, uh, bobcats, ocelots, jaguars, and lynx. A lynx, okay, in Arizona. Okay, there's ocelots and jaguars that pass through here and there now and again. They're already protected. Nobody's out there trapping ass ocelots, jaguars, or knowingly trailing them, right? And there's no freaking lynx to begin with. And then trapping of mountain lions and bobcats is already banned. Correct me if I'm wrong. Am I wrong? You can't trap lions instead of Arizona. Can you still trap bobcats? No, I, I, I believe I think on private land right? you can't. I believe you can trap. Um, coyotes and bobcats on private land, but I'm not 100% sure, but definitely not on public land. Um, and it's so what you're saying, what you're saying like, they're, they're using words to portray an image, and it's already illegal to, to hunt jaguars in Arizona. It's, that's what I'm saying. There, is, there are not even links in Arizona. So they're, they're, you know, they're using... Those, those buzzwords or those, you know, uh, they're, they're pulling on people's heartstrings and to try and push their agenda. Yep. Call them out. 
call them out and do it respectfully and do it from an educated place. That's my that's my duty with that. That's the way I feel about that. Is that hit them head on, don't give them an inch, and it's it's not okay and it's damaging and it's you know what they're telling? They're telling lies to our children, right? They're telling lies to our children about a public resource that you and I own. I'm an American citizen. Just you know, I have dual citizenship. I have an, a, a British passport and an American passport. I retain my British passport because my parents are getting old. I don't know if I'm ever going to have to go back there for a prolonged period of time as my parents get older. Um, but I'm a proud American citizen. I love this country, and, and I love the fact that we have all this public land, and I love the fact that we pay taxes into a system that um, makes a lot of that resources. All, all are, We all own that, right? We all own a piece of our public land and our, our wildlife. So f to have a, a, a company, a, a business with an agenda that is going to spread lies to the general public and spread lies to our children, um, we need to be just rise above that, you know? Um, do you feel like know. coming from from Europe, coming from England, and seeing what has happened over the years, and you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what has happened to a lot of hunting over there? Do you feel like that makes you even more passionate about wanting to make sure that people wake up and realize that you know what we have to not take it for granted? I mean. Uh, obviously, hunting is different in Europe than it is here in the United States. It's but a commodity. Until you go you know, to Europe, you don't realize that. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely have a, a little bit more. I've had a little bit more exposure to to like European hunting or English hunting. So, I, like, I, I'm familiar with how the general public views it there and where it fits in society, and it's completely different to the U.S. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I moved here, I moved to the United States J July second, nineteen ninety four, and um, and it was within the first couple of years. I think they banned handguns in the U.K. And I was just seeing everybody just handing, handing their handguns back. And in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking, my goodness, like, there's never been a problem with firearms in the, in the UK growing up. And I grew up in a very rough city, you know, an extremely rough city. And people would use fists and sticks, you know, before they were pulling out a handgun because they just didn't have access to it. The people that had handguns, even at that point, were mostly either straight-up criminals, which we all know will do anything they want to, you know, to to, to uh, get their agenda handled because they're criminals. That's what they do. Uh, and, then, and then generally private landowners, you know, who had farms, who had, who had a, a reason to have a handgun if they need something, they need to kill something right away for safety reasons or if they need it for their general day-to-day -day work, they need to have that thing. So they had to remove it from them, just removed a problem that wasn't there in the U.K., and just removed the general public's ability to protect itself, you know. And that's that's what that's what the liberals are going at right now. And like, I'm not a super political guy. I'm all about like whoever has the right agenda and is and, and is going to see that through and get the result. Then that and if that's something that I'm in line with, then I can support that. But I can't support what's going on in in the U.S. right now with firearms, all the stuff in the media, with all that the fake media of all these shootings that, that are questionable. Um, that just it's coincidentally isn't it coincident that it's like every like it's on a it's almost on a calendar schedule. Like I run a business, right? And you have to hit deadlines. It's almost like the stuff that's rolling out in the media is is already like a business we need a perfect story out. to fit this. Yeah, 
Well, we have a plan, and here's the start of our plan. We start seeding this regularly, 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 and then they knock away at the little things that let them through the door to get their bigger agenda. We all know that. That's law, right? It's, this is a, you know, it's, it, it's not a, it's, what's, what's the saying? It's, um, uh, it's not a justice system. It's a legal system. If you can get away with it under the law, then you're going to get away with it, whether it's ethical or morally, you know, viable or not. That's, that's beside the point. And with firearms, um, just um, like I can't speak for like Australia and places like that, but the fact that Canada you can't you know have handguns in Canada or go into Canada with handguns and like just ridiculous, you know, it makes no sense to me. Like that, I mean, that's not. It's not when has that been a problem? Really, like whenever a crime is committed by a criminal, if they want to get that stuff, they're going to get it, right? They're in those circles, so make them accountable, stand them them up, you know, and. I don't know. So that's a hard one to fight when you, you know, you have most of the media that's has an anti uh, anti gun kind of agenda, and then you you have city people that are so disconnected from from the outdoors and from their own personal safety, you know, and uh, and uh, and that 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 troubles me. Um, but I do I do think that like, you know, um, I do think that. Having said that, we know hunting, we know like hunting particip participation is down, right? Um, mm -hmm. A lot, there's a huge push in, in, in of guys my age and guys just below my age or just a little bit older than me to really put food on their table that they harvested themselves because they know they're disconnected now. It's getting so, we're getting so far removed with all of our technology. The more 10 minutes a day we add on to looking and sitting at our phone, that's 10 minutes we're disconnected from our environment. Right, so I think that's why you know you have, you know, a, a kind of a push a little bit with, especially with food, because people can understand that they understand. Go kill an animal, then I'll eat it. Well, that's a, that's actually a justifiable means, right? If I'm going to kill it and then I'm going to eat it, no, I'm going to say anything, right? I can understand that in my head. I don't understand any other aspect of hunting because I've never done it, but I do get the idea of somebody wanting to put food on their table for their family. So the more we can sell that, you know, or or, or just educate people on the values of that. I mean, I'm standing here right now. I'm in my, my, my knife machine shop in Signal Hill, which is a 2,000-square-foot machine shop, and knives don't take up a lot of space, so they're here. And I have a freezer next to me that's full of probably 300 pounds of buffalo meat. Right, like completely. My family's set for like next couple of years with what's, that, what's there and what's in my house. Right, and I know where all of that meat came from. And I know who'd harvested it and I know it by what means, right? And so I can feed my family knowing what I'm putting in, in them and what, it, and what it's going to do for them, right? And there's value for that. So I think the more we can find ways to introduce people to that, um, and, you know, uh, I think that's huge. I think that's because that could really set a new kind of course, and I see that happening a lot. A lot of people are asking me about what we're doing. We just, um, Jake and I just did a mule deer hunt a couple of weekends ago with a friend of mine uh, who is a, is, a, is a director and a very accomplished and very, very talented um, director and a fashion photographer, and, uh, and he is in the skate industry, and he owns a skate business, and, uh, and it's probably, I don't know if it's the, the biggest one right now, but it's arguably the most important one in our industry right now. And he wants to do a cooking show, and he'd never hunted. And so he called me and said, I know that you do this stuff. Can you, can, can you help me? I want to go on a hunt. Can you, can you help me figure out how to do that? So Jake and I helped him over the course of like a year, year and a half, you know, making sure he was 
got everything set and he applied in the right areas and then we figured it out from there and he wanted a no bullshit just raw hunt he said i want to pack in i want it to i want it i don't want any creature comforts i want it down nitty-gritty like throw me in the deep end kind of thing and so we did a pack you know a pack string uh, into our local mountains and hunted with him there and after the hunt and he'd harvested the animal, we took a great shot. I think it was at 320 yards and animal didn't, I think the animal went about 20 yards, 15, 20 yards and uh, was done, right? And uh, after the animal, when we got back to camp and we were leaving and everything, I dropped them off at home, drove them all the way to, you know, Santa Monica and Jake took the meat and I took the, um, the animal skull and horns to clean for him. And he said to me that it was, it was a life-changing moment for him that's a guy that's in the fashion world he shoots fashion photography all day around in the most luxurious situations and he was interested in it because of the harvest of the meat and the experience of of, of what it would take for him to do that you know and uh and he said it was a life-changing experience and he's a very well educated very smart very successful very talented individual the more people like that that we can get involved and, and make it easy for them to get into it and figure it out because it's a complicated process. You know, if you don't do it, like, and someone says to me, hey, I want to go hunt with you. I'm like, well, what do you want to hunt? You know, that's the first question. What do you want to hunt? And they go, well, I don't know, just something like an elk or something like that. And I look and go, well, we're in California. <laughs> if you want to hunt an elk, you, you know, it's not going to be as simple as, you know, as we'd like it to be. So I think if we can find ways, you know, in our Western states to I implement that or just try to do as much of that, I think that that will help, you know. And, uh, you know, a guy like what we guided, if he starts a cooking show and it's the biggest show on Netflix, right, and he gets all wild meat from all of the best resources in the Western U.S. or, or North America or worldwide, and he's working with, with people in the industry that are, very well networked and very supportive of what he's doing and it's a great reflection and a great look but you'd be surprised how far some of those things can go i'm sure a lot of people who are watching this um probably have uh, are familiar with jackass and are familiar with like viva la bam and all those mtv shows um that's that was a huge deal right like massive amount of exposure for all of those guys they all came from skateboarding. They came from Skateboard Magazine, and, and then Bam came from making videos with his friends that were funny, and they made a show out of it. And it was just uh, just groundbreaking, right? Well, that got a lot of people, a lot of people to ride a skateboard, right? And it also got a lot of people to understand that what we do isn't just kind of super clinical and, and, and drab. There's a lot of cultural relevancy to it, and there's a lot of creativity to it i think kind of opening up new ideas and new things in hunting is where it needs to go um because the traditional old ways of standing by your laurels and going um you know this is the way it always was and i'm going to stand by that till the day that i die we don't have that luxury anymore you know we don't we have to listen to the you know the bull crap that's like just fake news and just um just lies and propaganda and we have to be smarter than that and we have to bring people into the industry that are younger and smarter than that, or even older and smarter than that, right? And so, um, you know, that's that's kind of where my head's at with it, that, like, you know, this huge hunt that we just had with Goliath is such a monumental 
experience for everybody and so much hard work. And and, and Jake should t to tell you every little bit about that because it, it's Jake's baby, and I'm just freaking so proud of him, right? And but him and I and and and, and Josh Shulgin and and all of our guys, we put in so much time and work and effort, and every day we're communicating with each other, going, well, what about this? And I went here and I saw that. Well, what about that? If we even put that kind of intensity into into the bigger picture, um, and Kuyu's doing that, Kuyu's doing that big time, super respectful, really professional business, run from the head down, right? And you need inspired leadership in any industry to change those industries, and uh, and Jason certainly is that, and so. We just need more of that, right? We need as much of that as we can get without the hidden agenda of, oh, you're just doing this so you can have more hunting access or you can have more hunting opportunities. Well, yeah, we are. You know what? But if we don't do this, we're not going to have any hunting opportunities, you know? So that's the way I look at it. It's a ticking time bomb. We either stand up and, like, try to try to get in front of a, a you know, bigger audience, and but have that audience want, want to listen is the biggest is the biggest challenge, you know? Uh, on that, and uh, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I look forward to, you know, hunting my my, my ass off, and and uh, you know, trying to learn everything there is to, to to know. And I've been guiding with Jake since he started his out since he started Keeker Outfitters, and helping him on all his California sheep hunts. And so you know, every time we go on those sheep hunts, it's a, it's an it's a new experience for me. But the whole rest of the year, I'm scouting all those ranges that we have clients for, and that we don't, or we have potential clients for. So. I'm throwing myself in the deep end. I'm committed to continuing to keep guiding, and especially with sheep, um, and uh, and uh, and then also, you know, growing my my knife brand and and kind of uh, trying to go at some of those issues I'm talking about through that business. And it's early days. The business has been around for like three three or four years, and I'm just getting my handle on production because production with like low grade industrial manufacturing is is very difficult it's actually very and it's very expensive so you've got to get it right and we just put the finishing touches on i think i did i sent, i sent you a picture of that razor blade skinner it's called the ibk i don't know if i sent you i think i sent you a picture of it yeah you um, did it looks incredible we've been testing that since for like the last six eight months on you know mule deer hunts sheep hunts buffalo everything that we could get our hands on and jake jake designed it it's in manufacturing right now, and it's going to actually deliver. It's late, obviously, for this season, but we're going to actually market it and promote it and build it in so it's in real early for next season. So we're actually looking at all those ad buys and all of the Hunt and Digest in the Southwest right now to try to really let people know that, you know, as a knife brand, we're not just coming in with your traditional knives. We're actually trying to improve the product, uh, and we're trying to give um, the professionals, which is the guides, as we know, like they're the best outdoorsmen in the world. Um, hunting guides are some of the best are, are just, they're special people, right? And you, you know that, Jay, you've, you've spent a lot of time with those guys where you've been on either booked hunts or you just know them or you've just been around them and you see some of the skill sets are above and beyond just putting somebody in a position to take a shot. Just the, just exceptional map work, exceptional foresight and, and really understanding of, of, of every kind of, Firearms caliber and capability, and the client's capabilities. Like, there's a lot to uh, to being to being good at an outfitter and a guide. And um, I want to support that through my knife brand. I want to support those guides. You know, those are the best outdoorsmen in the world. They use not skinning knives more than anybody else, and they're out there in the deserts, mountains, and wild places in North America than anybody else. 
So they're a perfect person to, to test the product and to tell you whether it's credit or not or whether there's voids in the marketplace. And the number one void is the just a really poor quality product that's out there right now that's really cheaply made and doesn't last very long, breaks, is very unsafe and dangerous and, and just really low quality. Um, you know, the blades snap a lot. The, they don't lock in correctly. The design of them is dangerous. And so which we went at every one of those issues and went, how do we basically just remove all of those issues with a better product and better design? And so that's what we've done. And we have a fixed blade coming out. Uh, it will be out before the new year. Um, but um, then it will go straight into folding knife once we're absolutely 110% sure that it's A1 perfect. And, um, and it's the lightest um, razor blade skin and knife on the market. And uh, when it comes out, it's made of titanium. And um, it's got a lot of, like, bells and whistles that once you see it and once you get it in your hand, you'll realize why it is the way it is and why it's, you know, where those little design details, are, what their purpose is. And so I'm excited to get that out to the, you know, to, you know, the Western hunting market and so they can see that, you know, this, this dude that's a skater is not just trying to come in and just change careers or do anything like that. Quite the opposite. I'm pursuing what I love to do that I've put on the back burner my whole life, and life's too short. And I have so much experience with product and product development and marketing and, and running a business in action sports that I'd like to bring some of that younger, kind of fresher take into the outdoor space, you know, and into the, the hunting market specifically and try to develop product that's missing or try to just improve what's there. Um, and so that's kind of really what we're doing. You know, we're striving to make just the best product that we possibly can and we'll continue to, to do that every single time we develop a new piece. Um, I don't know, you know, so I've been wearing that folding silverware knife uh, all, all late summer and all fall and here at the ranch and I wear it on my belt every single day and absolutely love it. I mean, it just fits in my hand. It's extremely durable. I've done things with that knife that you probably shouldn't be doing with the knife and it's held up unbelievable and it's still razor sharp. I um, like that little, and, little folder for uh, skinning little animals is what it's nice no, for. It's, it's, I'm really impressed with this knife. Um, I was going to tell you that. Uh, I, I really like this knife. It's literally on my belt every single day, and I use it for everything uh, here at the ranch. I mean, just it's, it's a crazy little knife, and I love it. So, you, you know, you really hit a home run with that knife. Uh, Thanks, Jay. And um, I, I really am excited about your passion for the business and the reasons why, you know, you're in the knife business and uh, I know you're going to do very, very well with that. And, you know, it's, it's been an awesome conversation here and I love hearing uh, the passion that you have for uh, all your different activities, whether it be your professional life of skateboarding or, you know, your, your, your company of silverware and your, your guiding and um, you know, it, it's no wonder at all that, you know, how successful you've been in, in the skateboarding industry and, and all the companies and major brands. I mean, uh, we don't need to get into that, but, I mean, the biggest brand in your industry you have been involved with and, um, you know, hearing you talk now and, and never having met you in person, I know exactly why you've been successful and, uh, I just appreciate you coming on and sharing with us and, and, and sharing your love for the game. 
so to speak, with us, and and I'm excited to meet you one day in person, and and uh, you know I will continue to follow you on Instagram and and follow your successes uh, moving forward. And I do think you're right in that we do need to stand up and we do need to educate the public uh, on on the issues that we're facing uh, in our country, whether it be you know the, the removal of guns or you know, you know, trophy hunting or hunting or, you know, trying to stop hound hunting or predator hunting or lion hunting or just people's perceptions of how they say a word. I mean, the word trophy hunting, it, you know, it's just got yeah. such a, a negative connotation and a lot of people, it rolls off their tongue and they don't even know what it is or, or you know, hound hunting. There's just no understanding there. So, I think uh, you are a perfect ambassador for uh, being able to bridge that gap between, uh, you know, a lot of people that you come in contact with that maybe have never hunted ever in their life. And, um, you know, to hear the passion you have in your voice about trying to make people aware of, you know, how you do it and how you see you know, guides and outfitters and other hunters and the respect that they have for it. And so I think it takes people like you to to preserve what we have. And, and um, I think it's, you know, we have so many amazing opportunities in the U.S. with the public land. Um, and, you know, the reality is all across the world, they, there, there are not opportunities like what we have here. No, we and have some special. We, we have some really, we really can't let them slip right. away for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, well, buddy, it's been but, so awesome having you on. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate it. And thanks for everything you do for Western Hunting. And like I said, I'll continue to... I'm looking forward to listening to Jason Hurston's podcast now. I'm going to get off the phone. And I'm still on my sheep high. I told you you're going to have to work real hard to get me <laughs> sheep high. And you have not done so, Jay. You've got more work ahead of you. Um, but I do. I truly appreciate you having on, me on the show. And I look forward to meeting you. And not, like I said, I'll be in Arizona and Sedona all of, all of next week. And, you know, I get out of Arizona uh, regularly. Um, I'll be out there uh, lion hunting with Andy Knowlton at Grim Rock Outfitters in uh, probably late January or something like that. So maybe there's a chance I can stop by and we can meet up. And, uh, you know, I just look forward to seeing you and, and uh, I support you in every way. And and, uh, and just uh, congratulations on, on how well everything's going for your podcast. And thanks for having me on. Very much appreciated. All right, buddy. Thanks so much. It's been awesome. Uh, God bless you. I'll, I'll talk to you later, okay? Thanks, Jay. Take care.